0: That story.
1: Fantastic. Oh, so I went from I went from sleeping in a Dodge journey selling my books to working with Flatiron and being on New York Times bestsellers. <laughs> Look at that.
2: Welcome to the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Five New York Times bestselling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel. Christy Woodson Harvey, Patty Callahan Henry, Mary Alice Monroe, and Ron Block. As novelists, we are five longtime friends with 85 books between us.
0: I am Ron Block. I am so glad you've joined us for fascinating author interviews, along with insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of Friends in Fiction, Writer's Block Podcast. On this episode, we're chatting with New York Times bestselling author S.A. Cosby, whose Razorblade tears came out this summer, hit the New York Times bestseller list, and was a book of the month pick in July. And it was so well-deserved. It's a book that I and my other host love so much. His 2020 novel, Blacktop Wasteland, was a New York Times notable book a Goodreads Choice Award nominee, and on NPR's Best Books of 2020 list. And his previous novels, My Darkest Prayer and Brotherhood of the Blade, have met with plenty of acclaim, too. He lives in southeastern Virginia, which also happens to be the area he writes so vibrantly about. I am Ron Block.
2: And I'm Kristen Harmel. You know, we're both fans of S.A. Cosby, whose work has been called gritty and heartbreaking and dark, thrilling, and tragic. Prior to becoming a full-time novelist, he worked as a bouncer, construction worker, and retail manager. He even worked once for six hours as a mascot for a major fast food chain in what he calls the world's hottest costume. And I might have to dispute that (laughs) because I used to wear a costume a handful of times for a minor league baseball team. So Sean, we can discuss that later. His backstory is fascinating. And so is Razorblade Tears, which the Washington Post called provocative, violent, beautiful, and moving too. And the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel hailed as a tour de force, poignant, action-packed, and profound. Welcome to the podcast, Sean. We are so happy to have you.
1: We Thank are. you so much. I don't know if I can live up to all that praise in the introduction, but I'll do my best. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, one needs only pick up razor blade tears and they will get it.
1: Exactly.
0: So first up, Sean, we would love to have you tell us a little bit of what the book is about and as Kristen mentioned, we did both love. The tagline on your publisher's website is, A Black Father, A White Father, Two Murdered Sons, a quest for vengeance. Now, who doesn't want to read that, right? <laughs> it's kind of the perfect shorthand description, though, but there's so much more. Can you tell us more yeah, about the book?
1: Yeah, thank you. So, Raised Blade Tears is a story of Ike Randolph and Buddy Lee Jenkins, two fathers, one black, one white, both ex cons, who at the beginning of the book are notified by the police that their married sons, Isaiah and Derek, an interracial gay couple, have been murdered and what appears to be A random hate crime. Both Ike and Buddy Lee decide to investigate the crime after it seems like the police investigation has stalled. Both these men are men who are well acquainted with violence, and violence is sometimes the only way they know how to communicate. And unfortunately, that translated to their relationships with their sons. Neither one of these men were able to accept their sons fully for who they were. And so they decide to give them in death the love and protection they didn't give them in life. So it's a story about revenge, grief, guilt, but also about redemption and masculinity and manhood. And also the, what I like to call the Holy Trinity of Southern fiction, which is race, class, and sex. I guess you could throw religion in there as an addendum. (laughs) Yeah. But (laughs) But it's definitely a story that was very um, challenging for me to write and to get right. And I'm just so overwhelmed by the way people have received it and reacted to it. Yeah. I think it strikes a lot of chords.
0: (laughs) Yeah,
2: it absolutely does. And those reactions are so, so well-deserved, Sean. I mean, it, It's just a book that grabs you and doesn't let you go, I I think, on so many levels, from the plot to the underlying message. So I was particularly struck by how efficiently this book blows stereotypes wide open and forces us to confront both racism and homophobia, both the big, obvious pictures of both things, but also the little things, the little prejudices we carry with us. I mean, on its surface, this book is kind of this classic revenge thriller, which we could easily pick up for its fast paced plot and quite honestly, for the action and bloodshed if we're into that sort of thing. (laughs) But it's also deep. Like It is deep, deep, deep. And there were times as I listened to this on audiobook that I went back and had to repeat passages again and again because of that depth and because of that insight. There were things I just wanted to listen to over and over. So Sean, I'm really interested in the genesis of the story. Did you start off by thinking, okay, I'm going to tackle prejudice head on? Or did you start out with the story and that element kind of grew naturally out of it?
1: Really, the ultimate genesis of the story was twofold. <laughs> one is a little comical, and one is kind of serious. One of, I guess the comical issue was I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who was also a writer, and both of us are approaching 50 years old. I, I just turned 48 August 4th, and we were talking about being men of a certain age, and both of us have worked uh, very physical, manual jobs over our lives, and uh, we were talking about you know i wouldn't want to be a bouncer now like i was a bouncer when i was in my 20s or 30s and and we were just talking about how time you know time father time is undefeated yeah. you know and uh what is it what does it feel like when you have a few more yesterdays than tomorrows and what is it that you're going to leave behind and what's your legacy and how you treat people. And so that was sort of a, us complaining about being old, you know, I remember when I didn't have to get up with sound effects. And, <laughs> um, and so that was sort of the comical <laughs> when well, I didn't have a good knee and a bad knee. Um, Same. and so that was sort of the comical aspect of it, <laughs> but on a, um, I guess on a more serious note, I, I had a friend, uh, a very good friend, uh, who went to school with, who was, uh, who came out to his family a few years ago, and um, you know they were a a, a normal uh, black Southern Baptist family, uh, you know, uh, uh, politically liberal but socially conservative is I think the phrase, and it didn't go well. They weren't accepting, very accepting, and and, and I remember having a beer with him a few days later, and uh, he said, you know, maybe I should just kept it to myself. You know, and I'm paraphrasing, but that was basically just of what he said. And for me, that was so devastating because I was like, yeah. I couldn't imagine not being the full version of myself with people who are supposed to love me unconditionally. You know, I, I've never, you know, like I had a complex relationship with my mother and, and my father uh, and and I loved them both. But, you know, it was, it, you know, they're your parents. And so there is a complexity there. But I never felt unloved yes. before because who I was. You know, and I wasn't always the best, I wasn't always the greatest son, you know. I used to I used to get in a lot of bar fights when I was younger. I had a I had a wild streak in me. And uh, you know, I knew I put a lot of gray hairs in my mama's head. And so even that I just never felt <laughs> I oh man, you have no idea. Uh, but even that I never felt unloved. And so, <laughs> and so um, you know, I, I decided to meld those two things together, those two ideas, those kind of disparate ideas about time and 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 what time is you know and i think i saw i um i saw a piece of graffiti in new york city one time uh you think you have time but you don't and so i wanted to kind of meld that theme um with the idea of acceptance and talking about i always write from a perspective of telling a good story and then using a good story to talk about things that are important to me whether it's like in Blacktop Wasteland, where it's tragic and toxic masculinity, generational trauma, poverty, and we're raising our tears, whether it's about homophobia and stuff like, and homophobia and class and race and the 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 unfortunate definitions of masculinity that have kind of been foisted upon us, especially in a rural area, especially in the South. Um, but I don't go into it thinking I'm going to give you a message. Uh, I've said this before: nobody wants a three nobody wants a 300 page sermon. And so I think as a writer. My job is it's right. sort of uh, it's sort of like a magic trick. You know, it's sort of like being David Blaine. Look over here, misdirect you with the trick. And then over here is really you know, behind yes. the scenes is me talking and kind of whispering in your ear and, you know, t- talk about things that maybe are difficult to talk about up front. So I think that's the, the magic trick of being a writer, regardless of your genre.
2: Sean, you're giving away all our secrets, all of our writer <laughs> secrets.
1: You're going to kick me out of the International Writers Association. Don't tell
0: them. <laughs> I'm taking furious notes here.
2: <laughs> Sean, I, 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 you know, it, it's so interesting to hear where the idea of this started, but then to think about how it's developed. And and I kind of like how you compare it to a magic trick, but how much of that magic is intentional in a way? And how much of it is happening to you as you write? I mean, are you writing this story and thinking, okay, here's a message. I'm going to hone in on this a little bit more deeply, or does it kind of just come to you as the characters develop and you set them in motion on the page and they kind of do their thing? For me,
1: it has to come naturally from the interactions of the characters. Um, because I think it seems it will ring false if you force it in there. If you sit down and you know there was there was a there was a movie a few years ago it was a comedy movie and I can't think of the name of it, but they were it was a parody of of uh, very socially conscious movies. And every couple of scenes, they have a guy show up and he would yell message, and, <laughs> and so um, you can't you can't do that as a writer. And so for me, like with Ike and Buddy Lee. I wanted the issues that I wanted to talk about to arrive organically in their conversations. And so when you first meet them, you know, they're not to a certain sensibility. They're not likable characters. And so they become more likable as the more they talk, you know. And I use the fact that I I set the story in southeastern Virginia, where it takes 40 minutes to get anywhere, um, (laughs) to force them to sit in in a truck or a car and force them to talk, (laughs) to have conversations that, I've had with people that I've had with, with friends of mine yeah. and, and, and also conversations with the people that I think uh, were, you know, uh, had various degrees of uh, compatibility with my own thoughts. And so uh, for me, that message or that, that, that theme, I guess that thematic uh, uh message is coming through in the conversations in the dialogue in the actions and the way they work together. Um, and I think it has to be that way because anything else rings false. It's, it, you know again nobody wants to have something forced on them it's easier to talk about it between these the dialogue between these two characters as they bring up these issues and as they work through the issues um then the reader can see that and understand it that's
0: fascinating yeah it's such a great tool it it uh, builds empathy in people without even mm-hmm. without like you said message message yeah. putting that <laughs> out there um i there's a lot in the book, that we we deal with a lot of judgment. So people mm-hmm. meet each other, like uh, Buddy Lee and Ike. They, they're totally judging each other mm-hmm. because of their skin color, mm-hmm. because of their backgrounds. And um, the sons are judged because of their sexuality. Mm-hmm. And um, as some of the other characters we meet along the way, they're all judged. I, and I think the relationship between Buddy Lee and Ike really taps into... That and uh, exemplifies their friendship building mm-hmm. just from learning to know more about each other. They're both guilty of judging their mm-hmm. sons, and we get to see them confronted with their own biases mm-hmm. that opens them up uh to empathy and understanding so i'm curious how much of that comes from the path that you've walked you've told us some about that but i wondered if there was anything you had to add to that or having been
1: misunderstood oh, yeah.
0: misjudged especially as a black man living in the south
1: i mean i've been on both ends of that i mean i've been misunderstood and judged and and had people have if forced their preconceived notions about me uh i remember uh being in high school and i was a huge i've always i'm still a huge reader um I'm actually reading three books right now Um, (laughs) uh, in a round robin tournament. Uh, But uh, I remember being in high school and uh, I remember uh, I think it was eighth grade. You got to pick your elective class. You got to pick a class that you want to take because you wanted to for fun. And um, and I wanted to take civics. I love talking about government. I still am a political junkie. Even in these toxic times, I'm still a political Ooh. junkie. I think I'm the only person that watches C-SPAN for fun. Um, <laughs> and, um, and so I, I wanted to take civics. And the uh, high school uh, guidance counselor at the time, she said, well, wouldn't you be happier taking building trades? And I said, well, I mean, hmm. building trades is cool. Not, no no shade on building trades, but I really want to take civics. Yeah. And she said, well, I think you'd be more comfortable in building <gasps> trades. And I'm like, I mean, no offense to you. But I grew up really poor. I've already taken building trades. i <laughs> had to repair my steps at my house. I had to learn how to run plumbing lines and fix washing machines. And, you know, I was a shade tree mechanic at 15 because we couldn't afford a mechanic, you know, to go to an actual garage, you know. So, you know, I learned how to change water, uh, how to change a water pump when I was in my teeth. So I said, I don't think I really need that. And that teacher actually forced me to go into building trades for one, <gasps> the first semester awful. of eighth grade. And I, and I remember telling my, I didn't tell my mom at first. I didn't tell my mom for like three weeks, and then finally I was so bored because seriously, I already knew how to do a lot of this stuff yeah. uh, because of our our situation. So I told my mom, and my mom was like, "Okay, we're going to school." And my mom was disabled, so it was it took a lot for her to get and get into school. You know, she was walking on two canes at the time, and so we go in, and she oh tells gosh. the teacher, you know, she's like, "He's going to go into civics next semester." And the uh, the, the guidance council was like, "Well, you know, he's already missed a semester; he'll have to get all A's just to pass the class." And my mom, she turned, she's like, he'll get all A's. And then she's like, I'm not going to have to force him. He's, he's that smart. He's my boy. And I did, you know. And so that's a preconceived notion that, you know, it's one of those things that you just looked at me and saw, oh, you're a black man, so you need to work with your hands. And there's nothing wrong with working with your hands. Everybody in my family, the right. men that I look up to, have will always work with their hands. But the idea that it's forced upon you, that it's not your choice, is difficult. That being said, I've also grew up on the other side of that. I grew up in a very hyper-masculine environment. I, you know, I grew up in the area, you know, like my brother likes to joke uh, when we were like uh, when he was 12 and I was eight, uh, we saw my grandfather doing some work with a skill saw and uh, he cut the tip of his thumb off and he picked it up and put it in a bag full of ice and drove himself to the hospital. And I remember my brother turning to me. He's like, we can never cry for the rest of our lives. Crying is done. And, um, oh and so I grew gosh. up in this very hyper-masculine environment. <laughs> and so I grew up in this very hyper-masculine environment. We grew up behind a bar. I remember seeing my first bar fight when I was like 16. And so just this hyper-masculine environment yeah. and a, a, a terrible and, and unfortunate side, yeah. uh, um, uh, unfortunate side effect of that was you had this idea of masculinity and masculinity at all costs. You know, and so you could never show vulnerability. You could never show your, uh, for lack of a better word, uh, your more metrosexual side, your feminine side, let alone if you happen to be a, a, a young man or a young woman or someone who was LGBTQ. Yeah. You could never show that. And so I was the I am not a, I'm not proud of that, but I, I'm actually ashamed of that. But I was a part of that yeah. hyper masculinity, you know, and so you. Picked on people if you thought they were feminine. You didn't want anybody to pick on you because, you know, gosh, God God forbid somebody thinks you're weak. Yeah. And so as I grew and I had a a, I had a very loving mother, a very and a very loving but sort of misunderstood father. And I had family members who were very, very empathetic, who loved to read and love to talk. And so as I grew, as I got older, I was able to understand that my definition of masculinity and somebody else's definition of masculinity is not the final definition and that that doesn't, whatever somebody else definition is, doesn't matter. And so, that idea of judgment and passing judgment on people, and as, as, as um, Ron just said, passing judgment as a deflection, right. was very much a part of my young adulthood, young childhood. I mean, by the time I got to my 20s and going to college and stuff, I, I hope I, and I felt like I had educated myself yeah. and in a way that made me look at that with a more critical eye. But I definitely am aware of that. And so I grew up around people like Ike, like Buddy Lee. I grew up around people like Grayson. I grew up around people who are defined by what they feel their masculinity is, and they're too afraid to be vulnerable. And so I really was able to naturally put that in the book. That wasn't something I had to research. I just, I know how those people talk. I know how they think. And so I'm able to use that. Now, the difference between Buddy Lee and Ike and somebody like Grayson is Buddy Lee and Ike are on a journey of self-discovery. And some people may feel like that's sort of, uh, you know, pie in the sky, but it's my book, so I can do it. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you kind of, and i'm just gonna say here uh, sean that uh you and i are gonna get a drink sometime because <laughs> you've just described my whole life it's just uh, i'm just sitting here kind of getting a little emotional that somebody else understands that gets it so thank
1: you oh man well thank you for saying that i mean that's the that's the, you know at, at the end of the day that was that was one of the reasons i wrote the book because i i think we have such especially where I'm from, especially from the rural South, there is such a difficulty with empathy yes. and understanding different points of view yes. and perspectives. And I really wanted to write the book as a challenge. You know, I, really the people that should read, I want everybody to read the book and I'm so thankful for the reaction that the book has oh, gotten, yeah. but really I, I hope that people like, people who are like Ike and Buddy Lee read the book, yeah. but not so much like Ike and Buddy Lee that their sons or daughters are dead. Yeah. You know, don't waste time. You know, I, I wrote, I wrote a line in the book that time is like quicksilver, you know, it yep. slips through your hands and then envelops you at the same time. And I think that's true. I think, I, you know, there, there are friendships and there are petty uh, grudges that I used to hold that, you know, as you get closer to the mid-century mark, they don't matter. It, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't, you know, little things that you hold in your heart, you know, like holding a grudge, I think there's an, it's an ancient, uh, I think it's a Buddhist saying that Uh, holding a grudge is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And I (laughs) I think so many people do that. (laughs) And, and so the book was really about time. It's about don't waste time, you know, and, and, and uh, ultimately it's about that. But at the same time, it's also, you know, there's a lot of action. There's a lot of violence. Um, And I, I, I'd like to talk about the violence for a second, because I've gotten some questions about it. Yes. Um, It is a, a incredibly violent book. Yep. Um, but I, I wrote that if, if you ask me, like, what was one of the things that you did on purpose? The violence is, is, is extreme as it is on purpose. Because I felt like knowing men like I can buddy, knowing men like that, that the only way they know how to communicate is through violence. Yep. The, right the violence and their violent actions are their communication yep. and their rage and their guilt. It was, what drives the extremeness of their violence. You know, that first scene or that scene where, uh, and I'm not going to give anything away for anybody who hasn't read the book, but that scene where Ike and Buddy Lee are interrogating someone in Ike's garage, that scene (laughs) escalates and escalates and escalates because of Ike's guilt. It escalates because of Buddy Lee's guilt. It escalates because of their grief. And so it goes from interrogation, maybe smacking somebody around, to what ends up happening. And because of that, they don't know how... That's the only time... That yeah. in the beginning of the book, that Ike is able to express just how hurt he is yes. in front of another person. He holds it in all the time. And mean, that scene where he's using the tool in a very violent way, yeah. and he's like, "You're the one that killed him, aren't you? You did it. You did." And and that's the only way he knows how to express himself at that time. As the book goes on, yeah. I tried to broaden his communicative abilities. I tried to broaden his perspective. So by the time you get to the end of the book and the characters who um, who have survived. And their relationship, it rings true because he's trying to get better. And so the violence is just, for me, it is just emblematic of the depth of their grief.
2: I mean, that's that's their communication tool mm-hmm. at right. that point in the book, right? Like, that's the only way they know mm-hmm. how to communicate. Mm-hmm. And so, right. it, it, yeah, the arc that these tra- these characters travel throughout the course of this book um, it, it It's incredible because, I, I mean, that's exactly what it does. You can see all of this emotion and this anger and, and they don't know how else to express it except for the val- the, the violence. And you wrote that absolutely perfectly, Sean. I, it, um, yeah. It, and like I said at the beginning, that's not the kind of book I normally lean toward, but you couldn't have written it any other way. And I loved every second of it. I mean, it's not normally my kind of thing. It was awesome. It's so
1: funny because I was I was just sending um, I, I was sending my editor notes for my next book. And it's about it's a murder mystery, southern gothic uh, murder mystery about a serial killer. And she remarked, she's like, This is so less violent than Razorblade. And I was like, I know, because I'm talking about it. I'm using it in different ways. <laughs> she's like, I'm just shocked that the serial killer book is not as violent as the revenge mystery novel book, but <laughs> <laughs> but I also, I'm using, I'm using, uh, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead.
2: All right. so we're going to talk about that new book in a little bit, because we definitely want a sneak peek of that. We want to hear what you're working on. Um, but, you know, I, I also wanted to say quickly, just before we move on, I, I was thinking as you were talking that especially when you mentioned how so much of what unfolds between buddy Lee and Ike happens when they're having conversations in the car, Mm -hmm. right? It strikes me that even the violence, right? Like that's the way they're having a conversation at the beginning. Mm -hmm. These are the things that begin to open them up and begin to kind of take the blinders off and force Mm -hmm. them to look at each other and Mm -hmm. force them to look at themselves. And especially with you saying that you're very interested in politics. I just think that's a a really just an interesting thing to think about that that conversation does that, that the more you talk to someone from a different walk of life, Mm -hmm. um, the more clearly you see them. And and to me, that was a message that your book really delivered.
1: I mean, not to get too far into the weeds about politics, but um, I, I don't think, I don't think that being a moderate person is a bad thing. I think we come to a point in some political arenas where being a moderate is a dirty word. I don't believe that. I think more people are more moderate than people actually admit to being. Um, That doesn't mean that, you know, I'm going to blindly uh, or blithely stand by when somebody disrespects me or tries to disrespect my rights. But what that means is I can listen to your point in your conversation and see where we're coming from. I think it was James Baldwin who said, we can disagree as long as our disagreement isn't rooted in your inability to see me as a human being. Yeah. And Perfect. so, you know, Perfect. I think that was really what I tried to do with Ike and, and Buddy Lee as is, is have them have them conversation. Another thing I did on purpose, which I think in hindsight was kind of funny. Um, I often have during the course of the book, people call Buddy Lee and Ike out on their, I don't know, if, I'm not gonna curse, but call them out on their yeah, BS. Right. People call them out constantly on their, <laughs> their BS whether it's Isaiah's co-workers at the news organization he yeah. worked for, whether it's uh, Ike's wife, whether it's the character that we meet later on of Tangerine, whether it's Margot, uh, uh, Buddy Lee's yep. uh, neighbor, uh, people call them out constantly. And I think, I, well, I know I did that because I wanted them to be confronted with their mistakes yep. constantly. Because I think that's the only way yep. you change. You have to face what you've done wrong. And then you can begin the process. You know, I I said this in another interview, but uh, redemption is not a gift. People think that's a gift that somebody gives you. You know, redemption is like this thousand piece jigsaw puzzle. And you have to do the work of putting it together. And then once you put it together, then you can show it to people. You know, here's what I did. I did the hard work. And so I, I really wanted that to hit home in the course of the narrative
0: and you did it you did it so beautifully because each time they had conversations as their friendship grew and their biases became less they they would have a conversation with somebody like Margot, and they would talk about what they've learned mm-hmm. and you could just see the growth in their in everything that way so that's exactly perfectly said well, thank you
2: well and that's kind of a perfect segue into the next question because we're talking about, Sean, how you say things so perfectly. You yes. know, we've talked about how we love the plot of this book and the message behind it. Um, but, Sean, the language. We have to talk about the language. <laughs> and I want to read you a quote, okay. which, which I read to you. I know you know the one I'm going to read because I read it to you a few weeks ago when we talked. <laughs> but it's a quote I want to read to everyone because every time I read it, I, I just it, it's just so smart. And it makes me laugh, and it's so funny. So you're describing a woman pulling up to a security gate in a wealthy neighborhood. And you say, Ike spied a silver BMW in the rearview mirror driven by a woman w- with the most severe. I want to speak with the manager haircut he'd ever seen. She zipped by them doing at least 30 miles per hour. Like she had some Dalmatians in the trunk that she needed to make into a coat.
1: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> <that's amazing. laughs> and,
2: and I, I know I read up. I know I read a funny, a funny quote, but this book is just filled with, um, these one-liners that are just so wise and unexpected (laughs) and that just capture things perfectly, but don't dwell on them. Like you, you, you give us that like perfect moment and then just move on. Yeah. They're so focused. Yes. And they're so focused and so perfect. And it's just brilliant writing. So can you talk a little bit about these, just clever tidbits, um, which there are hundreds of in the book, and how they yes. make it kind of from your brain to the page. Like, is this first draft magic or does this come during the revision process?
1: Oh, I can't talk about that at all. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it just happened. They uh, just shot lot, up on the page. Yeah. No, um, a lot of the humor. Um, <laughs> I grew up, uh, again, I, I'll refer to my family because I love them, uh, but I grew up in a very gregarious, uh, family a household uh, i grew up around a lot of uh backyard orators and uh barbecue philosophers and storytellers and raconteurs you know and i, I remember many on sunday uh, saturday or sunday evening where we'd sit around and my uncles and my grandfather would pass around a, a mason jar of moonshine and everybody would, somebody would try to outlast somebody with the biggest tall tale and i just remember that that rhythm that feeling of that uh, when i write you know i use those one-liners and and humorous observations to to move the story along sometimes uh because you know i do write kind of you know the, there's a lot of humor in my books uh i do write but i do generally write yeah. i'm talking about dark subjects and so for me uh the humor is a palate cleanser sometimes uh it's a way to move the story along without being disingenuous um i i said this with some i said this to a friend of mine i said i've reread the book myself after it came out and uh I said, man, I gave Buddy Lee the best one-liners, but Ike gets the best threats. And so, <laughs> um, I but, of, but I think uh, for me, I love language. I literally am in love with words. Um, one, I, I, I wrote a post about this on social media today. One of the things that I miss so much in in you know, suffering through this pandemic, is going to a restaurant or a bar and not eavesdropping for content, but eavesdropping to listen to the way people talk how people talk, how people engage in dialogue, you know, and, you know, the stop and start of a conversation between strangers or people on a first date or the comfortable rhythm of a conversation between people who have been friends for years. Uh, The way if you have a, if you have a table with four people, somebody's going to be the quote unquote alpha dog and other people deflect to him or her. And just the way that rhythm, the dialogue works within the context of using it also as prose and how prose, you know, I write, I tend to write my dialogue very, very uh, uh, naturalistically. You know, the the way my characters talk, uh, you know, most characters aren't pontificating in long soliloquies. And then I use my third person omniscient narrator to be a little more poetic, be a little more purple, if you will, with the prose. Um, Because I think creating this sort of dichotomy between the way my characters are, and if you were to imagine them in real life, having a conversation, and then stepping out and having this third-person narrator be sort of this Greek chorus that can describe things a little more esoterically. For me, that creates a really interesting, stylistic feeling in the book. So you can have Ike and Buddy Lee talking about, you know, drinking Hennessy and, and complaining about, you know, their their mistakes. And you can have their character step back and talk about, you know, how, you know, time time makes loyalty uh, thin, you know, and, and most people can they shed it like a snake skin, you know. And, and just so you can have these sort of more poetic statements yes, nice. from an observer who's sort of outside the action and then have. The real characters that are within the action talking a more naturalistic, a more down-to-earth way. And again, for me, that dichotomy creates an interesting stylistic feeling in the book. Um, and so that's where a lot of my uh, uh, one-liners and and observations come from. I mean, most of it's first draft because uh, I hate rewriting. I know that's a terrible <laughs> thing to say as a writer. I, no, I, I, I I'm the same. Uh, <laughs> most of it's first draft. Some of it's second draft and and also working with a really great editor, uh, my editor Christine uh, Kapachek L- and is a really interesting editor who gets me, um, and it's funny because it's funny because we have very little in common. She's you know uh, someone from the Upper West Side of New York who lives in Connecticut. You know I'm a, a Southerner. Uh, you know who uh, you know uh, works you know live down in the South, and but we get each other on an intellectual level, and she understands what I'm trying to do when I, I write, and so mostly what she does is just very gently steer me one way or another. Uh, if anybody who's read my books, I am, I have a terrible addiction to similes and metaphors. But we're grateful. (laughs) grateful. I have to sometimes be brought back from the precipice a little bit, which is good. Um, But, uh, (laughs) but I, 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 and I think that's also, uh, you know, you have to be as a writer, know your strengths, your weaknesses and your indulgences. Yeah, I think that's important. And so when I write, when I write the first draft, I go over it and I look at, are there places where I've gone a tad bit overboard with the similes, with the metaphors, with the uh, the purple prose, like I called it? And on those places, can I scale back? But on the other hand, are the places where I'm a little too utilitarian, where the language needs a little more flavor, a little more pump uh, to be pumped up a little bit, so to speak? And so that is for me another part of the aspect of writing that's really fun. Um, you know, making going through the second draft and seeing where the story can be improved i um, looking for plot holes because I, 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 I hate plot holes in anything, including my own writing. Um, and so um, I think that's where the language comes from. But a lot of it is just <laughs> it's being a Southerner and, being, and growing up in a Southern environment and growing up with uncles who knew how to turn a phrase and, and cousins and aunts who could be humorous. And just there's something incredibly intrinsically beautiful about the language of the South. And, and and you know, I just I just it's, I'm very I think I'm very blessed and very lucky to have uh, been born here.
0: It's a huge talent. And I also just want to interject another one of my favorites from the book just to tease our listeners into wanting to pick it up. You could have easily said that somebody was just being needed to be careful. But no, you said careful is a long tail cat in a room full of rocking chairs. And I was like, oh, my God, this is perfect. <laughs> So Kristen mentioned in the beginning that you worked as a bouncer, construction worker, retail manager, and even as a mascot on your way to becoming a New York Times bestselling author. (laughs) And you two could have a mascot throwdown in a minute. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I've also uh, read that your first two books are published by an independent (laughs) publisher and that you are basically traveling around with a trunk full of books to bookstores and events. I think there's a lot of aspiring writers who are going to connect with that story and the people in the beginning who can learn from your story. So could you mind telling us a little bit more about your journey and um, kind of how you got where you are?
1: Yeah. Um. So basically, oh, man, I started seriously thinking about being a writer when I was about 16 or 17. And uh, I had a really good English teacher in the 11th grade named Mr. Bone, who uh, really inspired me to be a writer. Um, but it was a long kind of circuitous route to getting published. Um, I went through a lot of different uh, I went to college, dropped out of college, had to take care of my mom, who was ill for a while. And so finally, I started writing again in my mid 20s. And I was very lucky to meet some folks who helped me along the way in my writing journey. I started writing short stories, um, trying to, I really wanted to be a horror writer. I wanted to write sci-fi and horror. I wanted to be the next Clive Barker and, um, it wasn't connecting. And I look back on those stories now and I realize all my horror stories were really just crime stories with monsters. You know, it was just, so, uh, they always had crime settings. There were always criminals that ended up being attacked by, you know, Eldritch horrors from beyond the void. Um, and so um, what ended up happening was, and this is a true story. Um, I had a friend who was a belly dancer and she went to New York city to do a performance. And after the performance, her and her troupe went to a bar and the manager of the bar was a guy named Todd Robinson who used to publish and edit a quarterly crime magazine called Thug Lit. And when she came back from New York, she said, Hey, I talked to this guy He's looking for writers for his crime magazine. You should send him a story. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. I'll see. And I sent him a story and it got published. And then things just started to fall into place. I met a lot of great folks in the crime writing community. I wrote a lot of short stories. Eventually, uh, I got one short story nominated for an award. Another one was uh, got a distinguished uh, mention in uh, Best American Mystery Short Stories. Um, and so I just kept trucking away. And then eventually, I got with a publishing company out of Maryland called Entry Publishing. And I sent them my uh, my short crime novel, My Darkest Prayer, and they liked it. They really enjoyed it and they took it on and they published it. And anybody who's worked with an independent publisher knows that, you know, those those folks work really hard, um, but they're limited in what they can do. And so you've got to sort of have this punk rock mentality. And so that's where the uh, truckload of uh, paperbacks <laughs> came from. Me and my friend Eric Pruitt, who's a great writer from North Carolina, uh, Renaissance man, he's a writer, filmmaker, owns a bar. He's just an all-around great person. He and I, uh, in May of uh, 2018, we did a, a seven-city tour. Uh, we did seven live readings in seven cities. And at every live reading, we sold our books. You know, we were together for a week in a jour- in a Dodge journey. And we, <laughs> we had a lot of adventures that week. I need to write an article about that one day because how we met these people. And <laughs> there were folks that like took us on like, oh, you can stay with us because we're patrons of the arts. And you know, crazy, not safe for work stories. But ultimately um, what ended up happening was uh, later that year, um, BoucherCon, which is a huge mystery and crime uh, convention uh, that takes place around the country in different cities, uh, was taking place in St. Petersburg in Florida. And so I saved a bunch of money and I flew down there and I had my backpack with my books in it, you know, and was walking around handing it out to anybody that would take an advanced copy. And uh, Eric, uh, was putting together a panel for Southern crime fiction. And he asked me, that I want to be on it? And I was sort of reticent because I was like, you know, I don't really have a, you know, this is a little small book. Who wants to see me? And he was like, oh, man, get on this panel. It'll be fun. And it was fun. It was one of the most fun panels I've ever been on. It was me, Ace Atkins, uh, Steph Post, Alex Segura, and of course, Eric. And we had a blast, man. We had so much fun. And it, we talked about all the aspects of Southern fiction, which I said is the trinity, is race, class, sex, you know, doing, and the one then the quaternity, I guess, the one religion. And at the end of this uh, panel, a lady got up and she said, uh, well, I have a comment, not so much a question. And I remember Ace Atkins leaned next to me and he nudged me my arm. And he said, here we go. <laughs> and and oh. so basically, this lady said that even though the, the antebellum period of the South was hard for, quote unquote, some people, she missed the etiquette and the the beautiful cute dresses and and the style of that period and so then i said i said i know i know you miss it i know it's hard you know i bet you feel like you're becoming a minority in the united states now i said me and you're going to work through this together we're going to get through this together me and you and everybody laughed and kind of broke the tension in the room and uh i was getting ready to leave the panel and a guy came up to me i and again swear to god this is true a guy comes up to me shakes my hand and says hi my name is Josh Getzler and I'm an agent and I really like what you were talking about on this panel. Do you have anything? I know you said you got a book coming out later this year, but do you have anything you're working on? And at the time I was working on what became black top wasteland. And so I said, yeah, I'm working on this uh, heist novel with a African-American male lead. He said, well, here's my card. When you get back home, you know, polish it up, send it to me and hopefully we can work together. That was in October of 2018. I sent it to him in December of 2018. He sold it in February of 2019 for a two-book deal. And that's how I got with Flatiron. Oh, my God. That, what a that's story. fantastic. So I went, from, I went from sleeping in a Dodge journey, selling my books, to working with Flatiron and being on New York Times bestsellers. <laughs> Look at that.
2: You know, one of the things I love about that story <laughs> is that you got where you were by being yourself, by being authentic, by writing what was in your heart, by saying what was in your heart. And like, you got exactly where you were meant to be. I I, I just, I love that. I, I love, I love when the journey is authentic. It takes you where you're supposed to go. So Sean, can you tell us a little bit about what you're working on next? So I've read that you're working on a Southern Gothic murder mystery about the first black sheriff in a small Southern town in 2017, just after Trump has been elected. Can you tell us a little bit about that and where this book came from?
1: Yeah, sure. So basically, um, it's tentatively titled All the Sinners Bleed. Um, and it was basically me wanting to talk about some issues that, again, are close to my heart, that are a part of the Southern milieu, so to speak, uh, or milieu, how you pronounce it. Um, so it's talking about, of course, again, race and class and religion, um, but also talking about um the uh also talking about um you know uh policing in america uh what does that look like when you're a, uh, a police officer of color and so uh that definitely is something that i am very interested in discussing and uh hopefully it'll uh be out in 2022 or the beginning of 2023
2: it sounds wonderful
0: well, speaking of that, the last year and a half have really been tumultuous, as you uh, alluded to, in the country, not just because of COVID, but because of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, protests in Black Lives Matter, and all this push for police reform and accountability. But you're working on this novel. What's the experience been like for you in terms of writing about a law enforcement officer while living through the real-time reckoning that we're dealing with right now?
1: Uh, I mean, on a on a personal level... It's been incredibly, uh, it's, it's, it's dredged up a lot of complex feelings um, because I am someone who has experienced negative reactions or negative interactions with uh, police officers. But at the same time, I have family members who are police officers, I have family members who have served on, you know, have been sheriff deputies. And I think for me, I want to use this book to talk about the microcosm of policing in a small town, um, as opposed to tackling maybe the larger issues in, in more metropolitan areas, um, because that's what I know better. I know that aspect of it. I know, you know, unfortunately, a lot of times the kid who bullied you in high school is the kid who's going to pull you over five years later because he's a, he or she is a deputy. All right. um, a lot of times the deputy can't be held accountable because his cousin is the district attorney or the Commonwealth attorney. And so a lot of times sheriffs, oversight committees, town councils find themselves hamstrung because of the six degrees of separation that everyone has in a small town. And so I really, really want to talk about that. But for me on a personal level, it has been difficult because, you know, I think, you know, I've had negative interactions with police. Right. But I've had positive interactions with police. You know, I think that's the thing, too. Again, that sort of model, I won't say moderation, but that sort of shifting perspective, you know, uh, and I'm very blessed that, you know, I've had the negative interaction didn't result in me being killed. And so for on a personal level, it's just it's really dressed up a lot of complex feelings that I'm trying to work through as I write the book, because, you know, on one hand, it is a book about that and policing and what it looks like in small town and, and a police officer of color. But on the other hand, it's also about, you know, this mystery that's going on, this serial killer murder mysteries that happen in a small town and how religion plays a part into divisions in small towns. You know, I think it was Malcolm X that said there's no more segregated place on earth than Sunday morning in America. And I think that's still true. Oh, wow. that is you know, true. I grew up in a small town of 8,000 people. We have 18 churches. And so it's, it's something that I really want to examine. And I want to really examine how religion affects people socially, psychologically in that small town setting. It's been something I've done a lot of research, more research on this than anything I've ever written before, because there's certain things that I definitely absolutely want to get right. But also it's, as a lot of my books are, it's very emotionally cathartic as well.
2: You know, and I think as writers, our best work so often comes from those complex issues that feel personal and that we kind of have to work through our own experiences with to find our way into them, if that makes sense. So I can't wait to see what you do with this. I'm I'm just so excited. And same here. I can't wait to see all the particularly all the incisive, wonderful turns of phrase you come up with. (laughs) I I can't wait. I'm going to start printing bookmarks with all your quotes or something. So finally, Sean, today, we'd love to know, do you think that there's a message to what you're writing? (laughs) Is there something you hope people walk away with after they have finished reading Blacktop Wasteland or Razorblade Tears or this next novel? In other words, Do you think that there's kind of an underlying theme or message that runs through all your novels that kind of points to who you are and how you see the world?
1: I think for me, the thing that really ties all of my work together, whether it's my fantasy novel, Brother of the Blade, or my early private eye novel, Darkest Peril, or my later work, there is this idea, this belief that I have that the world is, that the real world sits on a really very fragile axis. And that a lot of times the guilty go unpunished and the righteous are forsaken. And when I write, because I'm writing, because I create those worlds, I do my damnedest to make sure that that's not happening in my fictional worlds. You know, even if sometimes it looks like the guilty might get away or they don't get the full punishment they deserve, or sometimes it may look like people are not being publicly abraded for their actions, ultimately things are set right I think it's sort of this idea that there is a bit of vengeance and there's a bit of justice in the world and that good people can actually triumph if they do the right thing and I think that's sort of this weird dark optimism that I have that I think runs through my books that you know that sometimes doing the right thing means getting your hands dirty and doing the right thing is never easy but it's always worth it So I think I have this weird sort of I have this weird sort of dark, Ted Lasso optimism that runs through my work, and and I think uh, it's just a reflective of my personal worldview and how I see the world on an individual level.
0: Yeah, and we're so grateful for that. Wow. Well, Sean, you're my new best friend, if, whether you'd like it or not. Uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us here on the podcast, but also we're so grateful for the books that you write. Great literature these past few years has not only kept us on the edge of our seat, but it also generates a lot of thought and empathy. And you're a master at this, and we're all better for the words. So where can our listeners learn more about you and your work and what's coming up?
1: Yeah, the best place to find me is usually on my Twitter handle, at BlackLionKing73. I'm always posting either random uh, random thoughts that I have at 3 o'clock in the morning when I'm trying to figure out a synonym for punch and hit and <laughs> kick. And um, uh, you can find me there or on my Facebook page at SA Calls the Author. I love hearing from people. I love interacting with folks. The one thing that, that I always wanted as a writer is, It's just for people to read my work and enjoy it. And the fact that people do seem to be doing that is the culmination of a dream, I'm sure. Nice.
0: Nice. Okay, thank you all for tuning in to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. If you're enjoying our conversations, please tell a friend. And Sean, thank you again.
1: Thank you guys for having me. Thank you so much. Yep.
0: Thank you for tuning in to Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast platform. Tune in every Friday for another episode.
2: And you can also join us every week on Facebook or YouTube, where you can see our live Friends in Fiction show that airs at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We are so glad you're here.
1: Produced by Autovita Studios.